Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome, Joshua here. On today's episode, my guest is Eric Zimmer, the host of one of my favorite podcasts, The One You Feed. Eric is a behavior coach, author, and deeply inspired by the quest to understand how our minds work and how to intentionally create the lives we want to live. In this episode, Eric and I discuss why he started The One You Feed podcast spiritual habits, the practice of Zen, and so much more. Please welcome the wise and gracious Eric Zimmer. Hi, Eric. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure. I really appreciate you being here. The One You Feed is one of my favorite podcasts, so I'm grateful to connect. Well, I'm, like I said, happy, happy to do it. For someone not familiar with the one you feed, how do you describe the podcast? Well, it's based on an old parable of two wolves inside of us, but we basically think about it as, uh, you know, a podcast that attempts to give practical wisdom for a better life is, you know, the tagline that we're shooting for. And what we're really after is how do we make wisdom of different types accessible to people so that they can actually use it in their lives? It's been many years now that you've been at this. If you can think back, what initially sparked the idea to start this venture? I had owned a solar energy company and that solar energy company, I ended up shutting it down for a variety of reasons. And I was kind of bored. I was doing consulting in my original field. I was working in software, but I wasn't really doing anything that had a that was really passionate for me. And I don't know where the idea came from. I just kind of got the idea. I was like, oh, we could, I could do a podcast. I could call it the one you feed. I could use this parable. And I could ask my best friend, Chris, who's an audio engineer to do all the audio for it. And so I called him up and we sat down at dinner the next night and I ran the idea by him and he was like, sure, let's try it. And off we kind of went. So there was not a great deal of forethought, really. It was kind of a whim more than anything else. I love it. You mentioned the parable of the two wolves and, and you start each episode with it and, and ask the, the meaning of it. And I'm really curious, what does it mean to you? And, and maybe a two-part, has that meaning changed at all o- over these years? The parable, and I'll just go through it very quickly so you know people are listening, if they're not familiar with it, you know, basically there's a grandfather talking with his grandson. He says, in life, we all have two wolves inside of us. One's a good wolf. It represents things like kindness, bravery, and love. The other's a bad wolf, represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second and he asks his grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So that's the parable. And like any great parable, it's almost immediately apparent to us what it means when we hear it on, on one hand, right? Which is just that our choices matter. What we choose to cultivate in our life determines what we're going to have in our life. And I think this goes for what behaviors, what thoughts that we cultivate 
is going to determine to a large extent the quality of our life. So I think in that way, it started off, that's what it meant to me, and it still does on some level. As I've heard it a lot more and listened to it a lot more, I mean, I think we're, we're creeping up on something like 400 episodes, which is just unbelievable to me. I can't, I can't even wrap my head around that. A couple other things have kind of come to my mind around it. One is I love it because I think it normalizes the human condition. It says we all have this. We all have these competing things within us. You know, we all use the words good and bad if you want. Use the words in Buddhism, we might say more skillful or, or unskillful, right? But we all have these different desires, these different attitudes, these different thoughts inside of us. And so we're always having to make these choices. And I like it because it just shows that's what it means to be human. And we seem to be in a culture that to a certain extent makes it seem like if you have negative emotions, if you feel a certain way, if you struggle with things, there's something wrong with you. And so I like the parable because I think it normalizes that there's not anything wrong with us. And I like the parable because it sort of shows also that it sounds the way it's described like, well, it's kind of a close battle. There are some others, but those are a couple of ways that's changed for me. I love this idea like so many do and you mentioned that it, it resonates universally. I think of from philosophical terms of the doing bad or the unskillful, it's a lack of wisdom. No one does that intentionally. You work with people and you're getting ready to launch a spiritual habits group program that I'm excited to partake in. And I wanted to spend a bit of time and touch on these spiritual habits and, and what that kind of means to you, what they are. Sure. Well, I mean, I think starting is the word spiritual, right? Because spiritual is a very nebulous word. I've often wondered if spiritual habits is the right name for the course. Because each of the habits, I think we could say are, you could look at them through a spiritual lens, you could look at them through a psychological lens. But to me, spirituality really is about what really matters to us. What's at the heart of things? And so that's kind of the, the sense in which I use spirituality is about knowing what's really important to us and connecting to it consistently. And so that's the spiritual part. And then the habits part is the idea of trying to take some of what we know about behavior science and apply it to spiritual principles. So the program basically takes a number of spiritual principles that people of any religion would all agree with, or even of no religion. And we'd all go, yeah, that's probably good. Like, let's just take one of the lessons is called allow everything to be exactly the way it is, which is a lesson on acceptance, right? And I think all of us would say, well, you know, we might debate about what you should accept or not, but there's a role for acceptance in the good life. So we take acceptance, but then we really look at, okay, well, how can we actually practice that in our day-to-day -day lives? What are some things that we know about behavior science that might help us to practice it? And so the program tries to bring some things together. I mean, one of the main principles underlying it is that little by little, a little becomes a lot. And so if we want to have more acceptance in our lives, we have to remember to practice it more. So part of what we work on the program is how do we remember? How do we remember to do these things? And we create these group environments that provide some accountability and some structure, and we use some technology tools to help us remember. But the goal is really for that week in the program, the week that let's say we're on that lesson, 
that that's what we try and turn all of our attention towards. I think a lot of what happens in the world today, particularly those of us who are seeking wisdom, is it's infinite amounts of wisdom. I could read 45 different key pieces of wisdom before I have breakfast, right? If I get on Twitter, I'll see 15 life-changing quotes before I finish my coffee. But they're not life-changing if I just read them. And so the Spiritual Habits Program is intending to say, let's just pick one idea and let's stay with it for a week. Now, a week is probably not really long enough, but it gives us a flavor of what that's like. It's been inspired a little bit by Benjamin Franklin. He had his practice of virtues where he, you know, I can't remember, I think it might have been 13 of them. And he would stay with one of them for a period of time. And then he would go through them all and then he'd just start over. The Jewish practice of Musar does the same thing. So it's really trying to say, let's pick a spiritual idea and let's really try and see the world through that lens for a week. I love that. And I love number 13 on Benjamin Franklin's list that model Socrates and Jesus. Period. Is that what number 13 is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Speaking of habit change and, and the number, the time, I guess, you know how the research talks about X number of days and you see different types of numeric values to that. But there's also some of those kind of immediate insights where someone will, you know, do a particular behavior for a couple decades and then in a moment kind of come to the realization that I'm no longer doing that. What is that about and how do you kind of differentiate some of those immediate insights, I guess? Well, it's a great question. I'll start by saying, you know, all those different numbers about it takes 21 days to build a habit or it takes 42 days to build a habit are all nonsense. There is no number for that because habits are different. What are you trying to build? Trying to build a daily habit of eating really well is really different than trying to build a daily habit of brushing your teeth. The level of effort involved in those two things is wildly different. And we're all different people. We have different levels of responsibility in our lives. We have different levels of stress. We each have different levels of capacity. So to think that there's a set number, it's a myth. The next point that you make, though, which is, I think, has to do with the suddenness or the gradual nature of change. Is that kind of what you were talking about? Or were you talking about somebody who suddenly has been doing something a long time and suddenly decides, I don't want to do that anymore? I think so. And, and maybe it's not so sudden. Maybe it was some small things and maybe unseen gradual movement. But there does seem to be a point sometimes where there's something deep where that habit is started. You've made a commitment that is at a deeper level to choose a different path, whether it's exercise or stopping smoking or whatever it may be. There's about five different ways I could take this. One of the things we know about behavior change is that there's something that was known as the stages of change model, which was attempted to sort of quantify and did a lot of study on how do people change. And what we think of as the change, I stopped smoking today, or I started exercising today, is really partway through this stages of change model. There are stages of contemplation. There are stages of pre-contemplation. There are stages of readiness and preparation. Then there's the actual change. And then there's stages beyond that of maintenance. So when we talk about creating a new habit like exercising or stopping an old habit like smoking or, or drinking, it's not an event. 
we can mark a date where maybe we go, okay, I started exercising on that date and I've been really consistent since. But if that's the case, it's because you consciously or unconsciously did some of that preparation work and you've learned what it takes to maintain. Same thing with stopping something. I have a sobriety date, right? So that date is an important date, but it's honestly not that much more important than there were a lot of days before that that I was working my way to that date. And there have been countless days since that date that I've maintained it. So, you know, I often talk about when I got sober at 24 from heroin addiction, there was this moment where I was sitting with one of the counselors there and they said, you need to go to long-term rehab. And I said, no, I don't. I don't want to. And I went back to my room and I sat there and I had a moment in recovery called a moment of clarity. And the moment of clarity was when I thought, where I realized I was like, I'm going to die or I'm going to go to jail for a long time because I had like 50 years of jail time hanging over my head. If I don't go to this long-term rehab, I'm done for. So if we were making the movie of my life, we would film that scene and we'd have angels playing, right? But that moment is really no more important than the thousands of choices since that have maintained my sobriety. So we tend to be people that look, it's the nature of our narratives style of thinking. We want a story, we want a narrative that we can understand. And so, yes, we can point to beginning and ends of habits and different things. But there's a lot of work before and after those that have to happen for those to be anything other than a blip on the radar. That's really good. I think that's really helpful. When you connect that to spiritual habits or timeless principles, I think of impermanence of this constant changing. Does that help to connect the the dots to those many, many micro changes throughout the process and that continue to happen? How do you connect that? I think there's a couple ways I could, again, your questions are so good. I could take them a variety of different ways. In relation to spiritual principles, what I will say, or habits in general, is that I think we should, I always say to my coaching clients, you are going to get off track. That is a given. It's the nature of life. So we have to just plan and prepare for that. So whatever it is we're practicing, let's say we want to build a daily meditation habit, most likely everybody's going to miss a day sooner or later. We want to prepare for the fact that that's going to happen, know that that's the nature of it, and just think about what do I do when I get off track? Because what happens to a lot of us, particularly if we've tried to build habits in the past and haven't been successful at them, and by that I mean we start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, is we kind of have started to internalize a belief that says like, well, I can't do this. You know, I hear clients of mine say all the time, I'm the kind of person who is notorious for starting things but not finishing them. I had a client say that exact phrase recently, notorious for. (laughs) And so by the time somebody hires me as a coach, they may have had a lot of instances of this. So what happens is, let's say we get them started on meditating every day and they're doing well. And then for whatever reason, they miss a couple days. Their kids get sick. Their mom has to go into the hospital. They go on vacation, whatever the reasons are. They miss a couple days and all of a sudden the brain goes, see, I told you you couldn't stick with it. Why did you think this time was going to be any different than all the other times? And now all of a sudden we've started to create a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because we don't believe in ourselves and we start to fall off. So if we start from accepting impermanence means, hey, I'm not going to be perfect at it. 
with my habits that I'm trying for, like I try and meditate daily, my goal, my success rate, what I consider success is 90%. If I can do it 90% of the time, but I can do that week after week, month after month, year after year, that I consider success. But it means I might miss 36 days out of the year. It's a lot of missing, but I still think 90%, you know, I've got seven plus seven years now of maintaining that kind of record. You're getting the vast majority of the transformation available to you, but perfection will often stand in the way. I love that. It, it connects with something I just heard within the last few days. I heard Sam Harris mention how they got rid of the streak counter in the waking up app. They initially put it in kind of following what all the other apps were doing and then came to the realization that eh, actually that's a, a more of a problem than being useful. Yeah, streaks are interesting because I will use them. Like I have used them before. I'm on a streak. I want to keep it going. But the danger of a streak is that if you fail, if you fall off, that you just go, well, all right, I give up then. And you go from doing it every day in a row for 150 days to all of a sudden doing it once every three weeks because you're discouraged. All these things, I think some of the element of this is recognizing people are wired up differently. We can come up with some general principles that apply broadly, but part of this work that I find of helping people change their lives is you got to account a little bit for people's individual personality and circumstances. You know, one of the principles in the program is the middle way. So it's one of the spiritual principles is taking the middle way. And I believe strongly in it, but it's interesting because you'll have some people say, like, I see this with coaches. I have some coaches that are like, I am a very gentle and nurturing coach. I am all encouragement. I am, you know, and I have other, you hear other coaches are like, I hold people accountable. You know, I kick ass, you know, I, and the reality, what I found is that some people are naturally too hard on themselves already. So in order for the middle way to be an effect, I have to push them a certain direction. Other people, on the other hand, might be in the habit of taking no accountability for themselves. For those people to get them to the middle of the way, I have to push the exact opposite direction. And so I think a lot of what we hear out there as this broad general advice, again, there are principles. I'm not saying there's not, but we need to know who are we? What are we like? What might work for us? What are our tendencies? Yeah, I love that word tendencies, how you, you use that fairly often. I think that's so helpful. Something you mentioned to go back to is the word spiritual and you, you kind of mentioned thinking about, is that the right word? I wonder how important, whether it's not necessarily spiritual as in religiosity, but how important is that in habit change? I think of like 12-step recovery, which I'm not firsthand familiar with, but I'm familiar with the, the concept of it. It seems like a critical point. Like, what are your thoughts there? Well, I do think it depends on how you define spiritual. So the way that I'm using the word as in what really matters, I think is critical to habit change because in order to change habits, we have to know why we're doing something. What matters? Why do I want to do this? What's important about it? Connecting to a deeper motivation. So in that way, I think it's very important. Now, the way it's used in a 12-step program is very different. 12-step programs came from, AA was the original 12-step program. 
And AA came out of a very evangelical Christian group called the Oxford Group. And the Oxford Group's belief was pretty clear, and it was that God came in and got you sober. Now, in AA, in 1939, they wrote the first edition of the big book, and they did something that I think has saved millions of lives. Because the third step says, turned our will and our lives over to the care of God. And then they added something at the end. They said, comma, as we understand him. That phrase opened the door for people to say, let me interpret that in any way I want. And so for me, where I agree with the AA piece is this idea of, in, in the second step, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It's the idea of a higher power. So my experience of addiction was and is that, yeah, I did need a higher power, but that higher power could just be the group of people in AA. It could just be spiritual principles that I base my life on. It could be connecting to the spirit of the universe. It could be anything. So in AA, that term is used in a fairly specific way. Traditionally, it was intended to be God, an interventionist God comes in and, and helps you get sober. It's been broadened greatly as AA has become an international fellowship and has now has NA and all these different things. It's grown way beyond that. And so there, I think there's room for anybody in a 12-step program to interpret those ideas of God and higher power as liberally as they would like. I was hoping to transition to a bit into the Zen practice. If it's true, I think I've heard you state that that's your chosen path as a Zen practitioner. And if that's true, what's the reason behind that? It's true for now. What's the reason behind it? Well, I made a decision, I don't know, it's been, it's been a few years now, that I felt like the nature of the work I do, which is I have a podcast every week and I interview a person every week about these ideas, the nature of that work exposes me to a huge variety of ideas and paths. And while that's wonderful, I also found it after a while to be disorienting to me. And I just felt for whatever reason, a desire to pick a path and really focus. I found myself sitting down to meditate and being like, well, what am I doing? Not because I didn't know how to meditate, but like which of the 20 different types of meditation I have been exposed to am I going to do today? And I just felt the desire to be in a path with a teacher and do that. And I chose Zen because, I mean, for a couple of reasons, Zen was the first spiritual tradition besides Christianity that I, I partially grew up in that I was exposed to in high school. And I remember just being fascinated by it. I also did some work with a spiritual teacher, Adi Ashanti. Zen was the tradition he came from. He moved out of that tradition. But I've just always had a... I've just always felt called to Zen. I, I've always loved the old stories of the Zen masters. I've loved the sparseness, the black and white aesthetic of it. And Zen is very focused on non-conceptual awakening, direct experience of the ultimate reality of life. And that's really what I felt like I wanted my spiritual practice to be about. My spiritual practice has been about a lot of different things over a lot of different periods in my life. But for this period of it, I wanted it to be, that's what I wanted it to be. Was there a particular book or a moment? How were you introduced to Zen initially, if you can remember? I had a high school teacher who introduced me to Zen. 
introduced me to uh, probably the first book was, I can never remember the title, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki. That was probably the first one. There might have been some others, The Three Pillars of Zen. That's where I was first exposed to it all those years ago. I didn't understand it in any way, shape, or form. I didn't study it deeply, but I just remember it, it caught my attention. There was something about it that seemed mysterious and deep and profound. And then throughout all the years intervening, that was when I was 17 years old, and all the years intervening, you know, I would pick up books by Zen writers. I was really influenced by a Zen writer for a number of years named Bernie Glassman, who founded something called Zen Peacemakers that led these bearing witness retreats to like Auschwitz and different places. I was just very inspired by the work he did. Like I said, the spiritual teacher, Adi Ashanti, although not a Zen teacher anymore, came out of that tradition. You can just, so much of what he talks about comes from there. I just had been exposed to it here and there over the years. How do you see the concept of the beginner's mind tying back into habit change, if you do? Well, I think a, a couple different ways. I mean, I think if we're talking about, I'm struggling to make a change, right? I'm trying, I'm trying to make a change and I can't. Beginner's mind can be really important. When I finally got sober at 24 from heroin, I'd had four years maybe at that point of trying to figure out how to deal with these problems myself or by going into wandering into the occasional Narcotics Anonymous meeting or going into a short detox, but still thinking I was certain like I knew how to do this. I would do it my way. So when I came into AA the last time, that time, slightly longer story, but we don't need to go into it. I came in with a I'm done. I don't know how to do this. I have no freaking idea. I was, I had been beaten by drugs. I mean, my life was a disaster. And I just was like, I, I don't know what to do. Tell me what to do. I'll do it. So I had a beginner's mind. I no longer thought I knew how. The other way would be also, we talked about a little bit before, people coming in and saying like, I'm the kind of person who is like this. I can't stick with anything. It would be good to go back to beginner's mind in that case and go, you know what? I'm going to open up to the possibility that maybe I'm wrong about myself. Maybe that assumption isn't true. When you think about some of the other, I don't know what you would call them, but principles, whether it's like interconnectedness or, or no self, how does that influence your work in, in terms of helping people kind of make these positive changes? It depends what we're working on. If I'm trying to help somebody establish a exercise routine and be more productive at work, we're probably not talking about the deep interconnectedness of life and no self. And even the spiritual habits program itself, we certainly go into interconnectedness to some degree, but we don't go into no self too much because that's a pretty deep and somewhat advanced in some way spiritual concept. We're going to be doing a program later this summer called Spiritual Habits Plus, which will be for people who've been through the first program. And I really want to go a lot deeper into those ideas there. But I do think that interconnectedness is an important idea, I think, that helps in all aspects of our lives because the more that we can see the way everything is sort of tied together and the more we see that what we do influences others and what others do influence us, the better. So if I wanted to try and maybe reach a little bit here towards habit change and shoehorn something in here, here's what I'd say. I'd say that we know more and more 
about habit change, that your environment really matters. The way you structure your house, the people you surround yourself with, the people you have in your life who support you or don't support you have a lot to do with your ability to be successful. So it is realizing that, you know, I'm not this isolated person off here and I'm just going to apply these principles, these things in my life, and I'm going to build this habit and thus I'll do it by willpower and motivation alone. We know that's not the way it works. I often think about people quitting smoking, and I've heard a lot of people say, even people I know of from AA or other recovery movements will say, it was harder for me to quit heroin than smoking. And we could say, well, that has something to do with that nicotine is a very addictive substance. True. We could also say it has something to do with the fact that nicotine is a habit you reinforce 15, 20, 30 times a day versus two or three times a day. Those things are true. But I think it's every bit as true that most people, if they've got a heroin addiction that they get over, they go get help and they do it in community. And most people who try and quit smoking just say, well, today I'm going to quit smoking and they do it all on their own. So realizing the interconnected nature of us tells us that habits change better, whether we're starting a good habit, ending a bad habit in community. That's really interesting. How do you see interconnectedness as you, you mentioned, the spiritual, that word may have a negative connotation for some people if they hear that. Is interconnectedness a potential substitute for that spiritual component? I think of an interview I did a while back with the book Wiser, where it talks about these scientific roots and components of wisdom. And, and one of those six components that were outlined was this spirituality, not religion, but just part of something bigger. How do you see that? Well, I think interconnection is one of those interesting things because we arrive at the knowledge of interconnection or we're told about interconnection via two very different sources. One is ancient spiritual traditions particularly Buddhism, Hinduism, the mystical aspects of Christianity or Judaism, but the mystical traditions talk about interconnection. But so does science. You know, science talks about the interconnection at quantum levels. It talks about how everything influences everything else. And we can see interconnection in, in the, I don't even think it's a I don't know how we don't see it as a great truth in life. Like, I think you have to, uh, you have to be like, I'm going to turn my eyes away from it. If I just think about this glass of iced tea I'm drinking, I could trace this glass back. Where did it come from? Who made it? How did it get here? Who bought it? Who created it? Who fed the person who made it? Thich Nhat Hanh says, if you're a poet and you're holding a book, you'll see the sun and the rain and the clouds. I don't think you, I mean, yes, that is a poetic way of looking at it, but you also don't have to be really poetic to do it. You just think about it. Like none of this would exist without this other stuff. Literally, it took the entire history of time and all the things that happened to come together in exactly the way it did for you and I to be sitting here. That's just a factual statement. You know, it's like boom, 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 boom. You know, things are interconnected. They are interconnected in now there's a stretch to say some people say that interconnection equals oneness. Now that's a jump. Oh, it's all one. Well, what the heck does that mean? What I like about Zen is Zen actually says that it's both, you know, Zen, Zen talks about emptiness all the time. 
he uses the phrase emptiness, which sounds like nothingness, but really a better way to think of emptiness, I think a, a better description is kind of everything all at once, things without their divisions. But Zen says all the time, emptiness is form, form is emptiness. So it would be safer to say, or, or Suzuki, who t wrote Beginner's Mind, has another phrase I love. He says, if he was describing the relationship between me and, and the world, he would say, not two, not one. Right? Which speaks to me to the deeper truth. Like, because I think where people get hung up on interconnection, oneness, no self is they're like, but that's ridiculous. Here I am sitting here. I know I'm sitting here. If I hit myself in the chest like I just did, you don't feel it. That is true. So, in a way, yes, we are discrete forms. There's no doubt about that. And yet, there are ways that we could say there is a deeper underlying unity of these things. Both are true. And so, for me, if I miss one or the other of those, I feel like I get stuck. And that's most of us get stuck in one or the other. Either people argue for, yep, we're all discrete entry entities, we're separate, there's no connection. Or people try really hard to say, like, it's all one thing. But the rest of the world looks at them like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. And I like Zen because it says, well, both those things are actually true at the same time. Yeah, the paradoxes are pretty difficult sometimes to wrap our heads around. They sure are. This constant state of change. There's a quote that I really like by this pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclite is no one ever steps in the same river twice. It's not the same river. It's not the same person. In behavior change, how can we let go of maybe some of those mistakes from the past where we want to cling and think that we're, you, you kind of talked about the streaks of now I, that's me and, and getting to more of a, no, I'm, I've changed. I'm a new person here today, I guess. Yeah, that's a really good question because we used the word a few minutes ago, tendencies. And I like that word a lot. I use it very specifically because if you were to come to me and you wanted to make a change, right? And if you were to, this gets back to the middle way again, right? If you were stuck on, I'm the kind of person who can't stick with anything. Or let's take addiction. Addiction's even a better example. I am an addict. Once an addict, always an addict. I'll never get better. You're not going to change. It would be equally foolhardy to show up and be like, no problem here, right? There are tendencies. You have, you have been consuming an addictive substance every day for 10 years. That's a fact also. So I think that what we're looking for, you know, I think that idea of you don't step in the same river twice is true. But Yet the same rocks are probably there. Maybe not. Depends how long ago you stepped in it. You're still going to get wet. You know, I mean, there are some things that are still the same about stepping in a river each time you do it. It gets to both these points, right? If I come in and I don't, you know, and if I'm working with an addict, we've got to look at what are the tendencies? What are the triggers? What are the thing? What are the situations that tend to trick you up? We can't ignore that and just go, it's a new day. But if we're too stuck in this is the way I am, we don't change. And so again, I think, as I was saying earlier, depending on the person, some people might need nudged one direction or the other. We might need to look at more beginner's mind with somebody who's really stuck in rigid notions. Somebody else, we might say, hey, we really need to spend a little bit more time analyzing your patterns and looking for ways to interrupt them.
A Zen teacher, if they're working with a student, they will often look and go, is this person more attached to form or more attached to emptiness? Which do they see? Which are they more, you know, Zen will say, well, just realizing emptiness isn't good enough. You got to connect it back. Most people with spiritual practice are looking for emptiness. They're looking for, again, emptiness would be a way of saying unity, oneness. They're looking for the oneness experience. But Zen would actually say, well, yeah, you got to get there, but then you've got to integrate it all back. That's really helpful. I initially found your podcast when you had on Stephen Hayes. It was about a year and a half ago. Now, I was looking back to see when it was. Wrote the book, A Liberated Mind. Love that book. And uh, you did a phenomenal job in that conversation with him. And one of the things that Stephen writes about is acceptance in these essentially six pivots, allowing ourselves to feel this head and heart, if you will. How do you see that integrating with behavior, behavior change, or just life in general, I guess? Boy, I'm just going to be, I'm going to keep trotting out the middle way today. I guess it's the <laughs> theme. It's interesting because when I started the podcast, a question I used to ask people a lot was, how do you find the balance between, on one hand, indulging or repressing? emotion. Because to me, this seems to be a pretty fundamental thing, which is that I think, again, we tend to often get stuck in one side or the other. We indulge emotion, which could mean that we wallow in it. It could mean that we are emotionally out of control. If we feel angry, we scream at everybody around us. It might just mean that we let our emotions dictate what we do. Oh, I feel like working out today, so I worked out. But I didn't feel like it the last three days, so I didn't. That's indulging emotion. Emotion is kind of running the show. But people will often go to the other extreme, which is that we just try and shove emotion completely out of the picture and repress it and shove it down. And that shows up in all kinds of screwy ways too. I'm, you know, again, the middle way often focusing on, all right, well, how do we find the middle way there? And it took me a long time to have the words to use. But I think that acceptance and commitment therapy helped me find some of the words I wanted to use, which is, and these are not my words. I don't think I, I created them, although I may have modified them a little bit. I can't even remember. But what I say is now, you know, how do you strike the balance between indulging and repressing emotions? The term I use is emotional regulation. And I use emotional regulation just to mean working with our thoughts and emotions skillfully enough that we can act according to our values. So it doesn't mean we have to make the emotions go away. We have to work with them skillfully enough. And again, each person that might, you know, if you're an emotional indulger, that might mean, hey, we need to do a little less of that. If you're an emotional repressor, we may have to open up to them a little bit more. But what we're going to do in, in essence is go, okay, here is what I'm feeling. What's that like? And then can I be with that? Oh, yes, I guess I can. And then act according to my, what I value. You know, I think that for every addict, certainly, and I think a lot of people have addictions of lots of different types. I'm not just talking about your, your heroin addict or alcoholic here. Anybody who has addictive tendencies or addictive patterns, the thing we have to figure out how to do is go, I don't feel good. Okay. I can stay with that. I don't have to rush off and fix it. If as an addict, we don't learn to do that, our sobriety is tenuous. That doesn't mean that we just go, oh, I feel bad. All right, so I guess I'm stuck with that. There's tons of things that we can do 
to try and work with our thoughts and emotions more skillfully. But there is a point at which we have to be able to go, I guess I don't feel good this afternoon. All right, I can handle that. It seems like such an important question. I'm fascinated by, as you describe it, indulging, I, I think, rumination of of these things. As you're working with people over these many years and hundreds of conversations, how do we spot that rumination? How do we better become aware of, of that balance or that middle way between the two? Any idea there? It's interesting. In the Spiritual Habits Program, we talk about different types of triggers. And a trigger in the psychological sense means it's something that tells us to do something, right? So, we could use this positively. I get a reminder on my phone that tells me it's time to meditate. Great. Or triggers are often used negatively in the addiction landscape. I go visit my mother and immediately after I go get drunk. <laughs> my mother is a trigger, right? In the spiritual habits program, what I talk about is the most valuable type of trigger is what I would consider sort of an emotional awareness trigger. It's the trigger that my mom sets off in me, but it's not conscious. But that if we can develop the internal awareness to go, oh, here's what's going on inside of me, then we can say, all right, here's what's happening. How do I want to respond? I find it one of the most perplexing things in all the world that we can be completely enmeshed in an emotion and lost in it and also on some level not know that's what's happening. It's a fascinating phenomenon, <laughs> right? It's a fascinating phenomenon. I can be consumed by anger and see nothing but anger. What I am not able to sort of do is from some sort of remove go, oh, look, I'm really angry. How might I respond differently? So in talking about emotional regulation, I always say that the first step is to realize what's happening. I sometimes use it as like pulling the fire alarm. It's just like, pull the fire alarm. There's an emotional fire going on right now. If I can recognize that, and then I can just sort of go, okay, then what are the tools I have to work with this? If we can even do that, that's a huge step. doesn't mean that every time we're going to put out the fire, but we're going to have a much better chance. The fire department can't put out the fire if it doesn't know the fire's happening. So if I call the fire department, the fire department can come in and at least have some chances. And so that's, I think, really what it is. It's developing this internal awareness of what's going on inside of me. So really learning to recognize our negative states, but recognizing them in a different way. And then this is, I think, a lot of what we're talking about with mindfulness. It's why mindfulness gets... Yes, it's absolutely a buzzword. Yes, it's absolutely a fad. Yes, it's, a, and it's absolutely critical because it's the skill of awareness that allows us to make everything different. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes from Viktor Frankl. It's that between stimulus and response, there's a space, right? And in that space lies all of our human freedoms. But I have to know that space is there and I have to recognize that a stimulus has occurred. And that a response is rushing out 
and inhabit that space. And awareness, mindfulness, whatever, we could use a ton of different terms, is what allows us to inhabit that space. I think it's one of the first fruits of meditation that I noticed when I got a consistent meditation practice. What I felt like was that space got just a little bit bigger. I was better able to find my way into it. That's great. That was, I was going to ask if we can manipulate it and open it up a little bit through practice. So yeah, that's great. I want to respect your time. That really flew by. It's, it's really <laughs> been a pleasure to chat with you. Are there any, any books or specific interviews that you've done that you might encourage listeners to check out? Boy, that is a difficult question. In our newsletter, I recommend a book every month that, that I like from a guest that we didn't have. The guests who are on the show, I generally, I think their books are generally good. That's my criteria to have a guest. I'm like, do I want to read their book? So I, you know, I come across books. I'm like, I want to read that book. So I'm like, all right, I got to go get them to be a guest. I recently had a conversation with the fiction writer, George Saunders who wrote Lincoln and the Bardo and, and a bunch of short stories. He also gave a wonderful talk on kindness. I loved it as an interview. There was something about it that, you know, just clicked for me. So that's one that really comes to mind right now is a, is a recent one with George Saunders. But I've sort of given up on suggesting which interviews are best or not best because I just, I hear from so many different people, like, I loved that interview. And I'll be like, well, I never would have thought that was the one somebody would pick. Even amongst the One You Feed team, there's four of us that are at, at the heart of making this thing happen. And half of the group's like, I didn't think that one was very good. And the other half is like, that's one of the best ones we've had in a long time. So I'm just like, I, I don't know. <laughs> no, that's great. I encourage everyone to check out the One You Feed podcast. It is absolutely great. This has been a great conversation. Where would you point people interested in learning more about you, Eric? Just oneyoufeed.net. O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. You can get access to the podcast, the newsletter, any programs we're running, social media, all that stuff is all right there. I love it. We'll link all of that in the show notes. Eric Zimmer, I thank you for your time. This has been a pleasure. It has been a great pleasure for me too. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to our free email meditations. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life. Right to your inbox. Go to perennialleader.com. Lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. And until next time, be wise and be well.